And now, O oh Father, we've come to your word again, and I am I'm so pleased to be able to preach this message this morning and exalt the Lord Jesus. And I would be even more pleased if you would send your Holy Spirit to exalt the excellencies of Christ in the hearts of your people this morning. Father, may we see him for how you have revealed him in your word, and may we glory in it and be encouraged by it and changed by it. Father, leave none of us unchanged in this place. We thank you, Father, for your great provision and our moments of disappointment and trial and tragedy. Father, we pray that you would be glorified now as we consider these things from your word. I pray that you'd protect us from error and fill us with your truth and set us free from ministry to take risks for the glory of God in our marriages, in our homes, and in this church and around the world, we pray. And we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn with me to Hebrews Chapter 12, and I want to read over this text again, and then we're going to launch off into a different direction. I know that by uh, adding another message to the series, uh, God's School of Suffering, really kind of messes things up down in the office, and my apologies for that. I, I was just pretty overwhelmed by what the Lord revealed to me in His Word this week as I was preparing to preach what's going to end up being, being next week's message, which is the next text in Hebrews 12. But I was so taken by what the Lord revealed to me that I, I, I just felt like I had to share it with you this morning and, and so timely that it would be this uh, Sunday after the hurricane. And so perhaps those who hear this by some other means than being here this morning will be blessed down in the Galveston, Houston area. But let's begin with chapter 12, verse 1, and I want to read through verse 13. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Key phrase here, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for training, discipline. That you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Therefore, uh, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more, rather, be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame will not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Now let's stop there. I was mentioning this a moment ago, but on this past Thursday evening, I was doing a little theological reading just for the benefit of my own soul. And in the process, I found my soul so captivated by the excellencies of Christ as it relates to what the author has been teaching us relative to God's school of suffering that that. I just had to do something with it. And when I shared some of my thoughts with Brent on uh, Friday, I came in to do some study. And uh, it was at the end of the day, and he asked me when I was preaching, and I told him about the text, which is going to be next week's text. And I said, but let me tell you what I'm really excited about. And I told him what I'm about to tell you. And he said, oh, brother, you have to preach that this Sunday. And so I, I thought about it for about two seconds and said, you're right. I need to preach this this Sunday. And furthermore, I think the Lord would be pleased to have us go back and revisit the idea of God's school of suffering one more time, and you'll see why. The thing that captivated me in my reading Thursday evening was the reality that Jesus himself attended God's school of suffering. This is not pie in the sky. This is not theoretical. This is not something that he's giving to us that he has not experienced himself. He himself has experienced God's school of suffering. And listen, this is the part that really got me. He did it just like us. The way he responded to various kinds of trials and sufferings in life serve as the perfect model For how we are to respond to our disappointments and trials and the hurricanes and the lost babies and the stress and conflict in marriage and all the things that we commonly struggle with. Not only that, but the fact that he responded to each trial without sinning, I think is great cause for hope. It's a great cause for hope in our own warfare against sin. Now, in order to do this, I think we need, I think it would be helpful for us to review what we learned about um, responding to suffering from the text that I just read in Hebrews 12. And you'll remember, this is just by way of review, that in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 12, we learned about five uncommon, unbiblical, unbelieving responses to various kinds of suffering. And first of all, we learned that, according to this author, one of the common ways we respond to suffering in an unbelieving manner is that we tend to overestimate the intensity of our suffering. And we saw that in verse 4, right, where he says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, you're making a bigger deal out of what your experience than you ought to make. You're overestimating the intensity of your suffering. You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood, so quit your whining. It's in the Greek. (laughs) 
And secondly, we neglect to bring God's word to bear on our suffering. Look at verse 5. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as son. sons. You not only overestimate the intensity of your suffering, but you neglect to bring this. Why do we meet week after week and talk about this if you're not going to use it? You're not bringing the word of God to bear on your suffering. Third, when we encounter suffering, we typically make light. And if you have the King James, I think it's the better translation. We despise God's suffering. And I guarantee there are people doing that this morning. I guarantee it. God, this isn't fair. Why me? I deserve better. I mean, where were you when the hurricane came? God's purpose for our suffering, if we respond to it lightly or we despise it, literally is what it says, then we are responding in an unbiblical, unbelieving manner. Number four, we learn that we may tend, if, if we don't despise God's suffering, we may fall off the beam the other way and just faint under the weight of it. Look at the other part of verse 5. You've forgotten the exhortation that says, My son, do not regard lightly or despise the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. And so this discipline, this struggle, this difficulty, this tragedy, this suffering comes upon us like a heavy weight, and we have to decide what we're going to do with it. And some people push back at God and say, This is unfair. And other people just say, I'm dead. I, I, there's no hope, you know, give me Prozac, give me something, you know, to numb it, but it's too much for me. God, I don't, this is too much. You said you would never give me too much, but you've given me too much. And so don't faint under, we tend to faint. And number five, we tend to misinterpret God's attitude about our suffering. He says in verse six, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. In other words, our suffering is not a sign that God has rejected us, but evidence that he loves us. He is training and correcting and refining us as the perfect father would for his own beloved children. And these are five common, unbiblical, unbelieving ways to respond to our trials. But then the author moves on and he reveals the biblical response that God desires from us as we face trial. And we looked at this, number one, that, that every hardship God allows or ordains for us is training. We should think, we should trust that every hardship God allows or ordains for us is training. And we see that in verse 7, and I kind of translated it for you again in, as I read it. It is for, now if you have the NAS, it says dis, discipline. In fact, most of the versions say discipline. The word is paideia. It means training. It is for training that you endure. God is training you. And so when we face a trial, no matter what it is, a disappointment, it could be a little disappointment, or it could be a hurricane, or anything in between, or marriage conflict. What, how do we interpret that? By faith, we should trust, he's saying, we should trust that God has ordained this for our good to train us. And secondly, that God disciplines us for the purpose of change. You remember verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good. Now, what is the good? Well, he tells us, so that we may share his holiness. What is it in my life that is keeping me from becoming holy? Perhaps this circumstance, this job loss or this home loss or this difficulty in my marriage is designed by God in the mystery of his providence to rebuke my sin, to bring me to repentance and make me more holy. I should trust that maybe he's doing that. In fact, most definitely he's doing that, regardless of what the trial is. And number three, we learn that God's discipline promises reward. And that's verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, and you have to take this by faith, right? That's the whole point. Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness. Your life is going to change. You will not be the same person that you are if you respond properly, biblically, in faith to the trial that you're now facing. And then the author gives us a negative example of how people commonly respond to trials by reminding us of what Old Testament character? Esau who when he found himself exhausted and hungry, he had been hunting and hunting and hunting. He hadn't caught anything. It's my kind of hunter, you know, come home frequently without anything. And um, he comes home and he's hungry and he's tired and exhausted. He's probably dehydrated and he meets his brother. He's out, his brother's out having a, having a little camp out himself and he's got some stew boiling and, his, and he comes to his brother and he says, give me some of that red stuff. And his brother says, give me your birthright. And his brother says, what good is my birthright if I die right here? Of course you can have my birthright. Now give me some of that red stuff. Which is interesting, by the way, because Esau means red. And his descendants, the Edomites, uh, that word also means red. And it all started with him eating the red stuff. It's probably wolf brand chili or something. But the whole point is, he gave it up for a can of chili. He gave up his birthright for a box lunch. And it was foolish. He responded to his trial in unbelief. As opposed to what we, all the things we learned in chapter 11 about living by faith in God's promises of future grace. Now, that's the negative, that's a negative model. And that's the inspired negative model. And it's very helpful, very instructive for us. But my question is, what about a positive model? What about a model for how to do it right? God, show me, how do I respond properly when I'm faced with a disappointment? Or when somebody just rubs me the wrong way? Or somebody cuts me off in traffic? Or a tornado comes and takes my home? Or someone I love dies? God, how do I respond to that in a way that pleases the Lord? What exactly does it look like to respond to trials and sufferings in a manner that pleases the Lord? Well, you know that we don't need to look any further than the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's where the author started back at the beginning of this chapter. Back at the very beginning, right? He points us to Christ. In verse 2, he exhorts us with these words, fix or fixing as if, 
doing this all the time. Keep continually fixing your eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter, or a better term is pioneer. And you're going to see why that's meaningful here in just a minute. The guy who, the one who went before us, the the one who did it first. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, this is his motivation, it was the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, at first blush, this might not seem like much of an encouragement for us. After all, Jesus, we might think, wasn't really like us. Um, He had a bit of an advantage, right, in dealing with his trials because, I mean, he's God. I mean, if I were God, I'd be able to handle my trials a little better too, right? And that's where we live. We think of Jesus that way. And this is what astounded me in my reading. And it grabbed hold of my soul. Because I'm going to teach you something here that, that, that we need to know about Christ. Um, this perspective that Jesus had this great advantage over us because he was God misses the point of the incarnation. It misses the point of how Jesus came to earth. It overlooks the significant characteristic of the incarnate Christ. Yes, he was And is God in flesh. But remember, remember this. He laid aside his heavenly privileges when he came to earth. He laid aside his heavenly privileges when he came to earth. And we know this from Philippians 2. And many of you have this passage memorized. We're talking about doing a study on humility. This will be a key verse for us to, a key text for us to remember. Have this attitude which was, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, not let it go. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. He didn't have that attitude. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Interpretation, he became a real man and left behind the privileges of deity. When you see Jesus... When we consider the fact that he left heaven, we need to remember that he left behind the privileges of deity. He came to earth as a man. Not that he ceased to be God, but rather for the purpose of our salvation, he became a real man with real flesh and therefore real limitations and real weaknesses. And every time he faced a problem or conflict or betrayal or tragedy or temptation, he faced it as a real human being would have to face it. Take, for example, the time that the Holy Spirit led him in the desert. This was uh, right at the beginning of his ministry. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4 because I want you to see this. Luke chapter 4. Verse 
Luke chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke 4, and we're going to start right there at the beginning of chapter 4. And here we find Jesus facing a real temptation from no less than Satan himself, and notice what happens. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now what's happening? Jesus, the man, is starving. Forty days, I looked it up this week. Forty days is about the maximum that the human body can go before it starts falling apart, breaking down, having irreparable damage. He's at that point. He's starving. He's hungry. And the devil comes and says, I know the Father didn't want you to eat until we provided something, but you can't trust him. By the way, did devil ever say anything else, say anything like that to someone else? Remember Eve? What's with the tree, Eve? God hath not surely said, Eat, and you will know good from evil. Eat, and you will receive what God has been holding back from you. This is really significant that he did this at least in, in the sense of our um, federal headship, Adam. He did this to Adam, and Adam failed. He did the exact same thing to Jesus, and Jesus didn't fail. We'll talk about that in a, little, in a, in a minute or so, but he comes and he tempts Jesus. If you are the Son of God... If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, what's, what's he telling him to do? He's saying, listen, you're facing a serious chi- uh, trial here, and I know something about you. I know you can fix this. Why don't, you, why don't you cheat a little bit? You have the power, and you'll make your hunger go away. You'll feel better. There isn't anything wrong with eating, and you've got the power to do it. Just cheat. Now, if it were possible to have a theologian of the caliber of Dr. Wayne Grudem stand here in the pulpit this morning and help us with this, I think we'd be greatly helped in understanding what's transpiring. But since he couldn't come this morning, let me take the liberty to read from a passage in his systematic theology. This is what he says. He writes, of course Jesus was the Son of God. And of course he had the power to make any stone into bread instantly. He was the one who would soon change water into wine and multiply the loaves and the fishes. The temptation was intensified by the fact that it seemed as though if he did not eat soon, his very life would be taken from him. Yet he had come to obey God perfectly in our place and to do so, listen, as a 
man. This meant that he had to obey in his human strength alone. If he had called upon his divine power to make the temptation easier for himself, then he would not have obeyed God fully as a man. The temptation was to use his divine power to cheat a bit on the requirements and make obedience somewhat easier to handle. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, refused to eat what appeared to be good and necessary for him, choosing rather to obey the command of his heavenly father as a man. And I read that and I thought, oh, so many passages of scripture now make sense. Jesus set aside all the the privileges that were his as God. And he told us again and again, I don't do any miracle except by the Holy Spirit. And I don't do, I don't, I don't blink unless the Father tells me to. He tells me what to say and how to say it. I'm in complete submission here. I am Jesus, the man. Now, did he use his divine power in his ministry? You bet he did. I mean, he's about to use it to change water to wine. He's going to heal people. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to do all kinds of wonderful things. But when it comes to responding to suffering, he never did a miracle. Not for himself. He never cheated by reaching into his bag of deity and pulling out one of his privileges and saying, I'll handle this right now. Not for himself. Not ever. Why? Because... If there were to, was to be a real human righteousness that God could put on my account, there had to be a real human being who fulfilled all righteousness and without cheating. And this is the point I want us to grab onto this morning, that Jesus faced trials and temptations just like you and me. He could have made the temptation easier by, uh, by handling it, by utilizing his divine authority and power, but in obedience to the Father and in, and listen, in faith, in faith to the Father, the Father who sent him by the Spirit into the wilderness, now he's starving, now what am I going to do? I'm going to trust you, Lord. God, I'm going to trust you, Daddy. I'm going to trust you. And Satan went away, and by the way, what happened after that? What did God do after Satan went away after this temptation? Remember? He sent angelic provision. They came. They fed him. And they ministered to him. He trusted God. And God came through in a way that we could never have expected. You see the connection with our lives? In fact, he faced temptation just as Adam faced temptation. Adam was a real man, the first man, and merely a man. The only advantage Adam had over you and me is that he did not possess the sin nature. He did not enter the world with inborn propensity towards sin. Nevertheless, when Adam was faced with a temptation, even though even though he didn't have an inborn propensity to sin, nevertheless, he had the capacity to sin, and he had the capacity to say no to sin, which every unbeliever does not have. Did I say that right? Which no unbeliever has the capacity to say no to sin. 
But when it came time for him to make the decision, trust God's word or trust a talking snake, he chose to go with the one who seemed to be meeting his most immediate desires. And it was faithless. It was unbelief. And when he did that, as a man who was not born in sin, but created pure and holy without sin, he plunged mankind into condemnation. Adam didn't enter the world with that inborn propensity to sin. And neither did Jesus. Jesus came to earth, as Paul explains in Romans 5. This is beautiful. You, you make the connections here. This, this is, you, you mean, don't tell me doctrine isn't cool. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't understand doctrine, if you're not growing in your understanding of the truth of the word of God, then, then you're going to be a weak baby Christian the rest of your life if you're a Christian at all. But when you look at Romans 5 and you see the comparison that Paul makes between the original Adam and this one whom he terms the second Adam, who is who? Jesus. Why is he the second Adam? Because he entered the world in the same condition. As a man without sin. Now what are you going to do? Adam failed, and so all humanity was thrown into sin and condemnation. What hope do we have? The only hope we have is by some miracle, another man who is not tainted by sin would come to earth and live as a man and resist temptation to the point of death and never once cheat. And that's what Jesus did. Unlike Adam, Jesus responded to every temptation by faith in the promises of God. And by doing so, he fulfilled all righteousness as a man so that men might be saved. And that's why Paul wrote these words, Romans 5.18, if you want to turn there. Romans 5.18, so then, and this is a long passage and I'm only going to read a small section. Romans 5.18, so then as through one transgression, that would be Adam's, there resulted condemnation for all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. puts a different complexion on the sufferings of Christ, does it not? And it helps us to understand other texts, like, since we're in Hebrews, Hebrews 5.8. Look at that. I'm just going to bounce you around. We don't have time. The clock is already upbraiding me. Uh, Hebrews 5.8, where the author writes these words, Although he was a son, yet, okay, think God's school of suffering. Although he was a son, yet he learned obedience from the things which he, what? Suffered. In other words, it's not that Jesus was ever disobedient. But I'll tell you what, he never had to face temptation 
and respond to it in faithful obedience as a man in all of eternity. And now that he is a man, now he must engage in the warfare and win. So Jesus learned what it was like to face real temptation as a real man with real limitations in the midst of a sinful world. In the mystery of God's sovereign mercy, Jesus Christ, the Father's only begotten Son, attended God's school of suffering just like you and me. There were things the Father wanted him to learn that he could not learn by any other means than by suffering. Is it not theologically true that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men? He was a real man. And he learned obedience. He learned it in an experiential way, what it meant to obey God's word in the face of temptation. He learned what it feels like to obey the Father in a world that's hostile to holiness. And because of that, go back one chapter, chapter 4, verse 15. Because of this, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Notice, as we are yet without sin. That's beautiful. I mean, that should do something to your soul. That ought to give you encouragement. That the very thing that God is asking you to do every moment of your life, Jesus did. And therein lies our hope, because where are we now in God's economy? Now that we have come to Christ, we now reside where? In Christ. Adam didn't have the Holy Spirit. Guess who does? You do. You have the Holy Spirit. Adam didn't have a propensity to sin. That's right. And he sinned anyway. You have a propensity of sin, but you also are in Christ, and Christ in you, the eternal hope of glory. And not only that, but your present hope of conquering the next temptation, because he did it, and now he indwells you by his Holy Spirit. Now, I can defeat the next temptation. I can now respond to the next trial in a way that pleases the Lord. I can say, Lord, this feels like it's going to crush me, but I'm trusting you. God, help me not to faint. Help me not to faint. Help me not to curse you with my mouth. God, help me to bring the word of God to bear on this. And by the way, you need help doing that? Grab one of these. One dollar or whatever you can afford. God's promises for you. Isn't that a great title? (laughs) God's promises for you. Down in the the bookstore, one dollar. Look at the promises of God. This is your lifeline, beloved. And if you want more, get this. I mean, get the Bible, but you need help with that? (laughs) Here is quick reference, quick scripture reference for counseling. I use this in counseling a lot when I'm preparing because what does it do? God, I need help. What, What scripture can be brought to bear on this issue? I look it up alphabetically. Look, here is 
the providence of God. Here's persecution. How do I respond to persecution? How's overcoming sin and changing? Here's what do I do when I'm, uh, I find myself in a, in a, I mean, not me, but someone who is, uh, comes to know the Lord and finds out they're now in a mixed marriage where their husband's unbelieving and now you're a believer. Oh, God, what do I do now? How am I going to bring the word of God to bear on that? What have you said, Lord? Get some help. Buy this. It's 11 bucks or whatever you can afford down at the library. Bring the word of God to bear. And here's the issue. Because Christ did it and Christ lives in you, you can do it. Can't should never be in the believer's vocabulary. I can't conquer this. That's not true. You can conquer it if you are in Christ. I just can't love the woman. Yes, you can. Look, if you can't treat her like Christ treats the church, love, then treat her like your neighbor, love. And if you can't treat her like your neighbor, treat her like your enemy, because you've got to love them too, right? You can do this because God the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. Christ is in you. Christ, who as a man did what he is calling you to do. I love what Augustine said when he wrote, God, command what you will, but give what you command. And he has. He has. Now, I don't have any idea where I am in my notes. Yes, 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When the devil tempted him for 40 days without food, Jesus made a choice not to despise the discipline of the Lord or to faint under the weight or to question God's love. Rather, he trusted that his father was dealing with him as a beloved son and that through it he would learn things that, the Holy, that, that God, the Holy Father, wanted him to learn. And then in some sense he would grow. I mean, this is the mystery of the incarnation. It's hard for us to get our arms around. But he didn't turn his back on God. He didn't despise. He didn't faint. He didn't question. Rather, he trusted his father was dealing with him as a beloved son. He didn't cheat by tapping into his eternal power to make the temptation go away. And all of us know what it's like. We all know what it's like to cheat. A woman begins feeling discontent, looking around her house because she's just been at a lady's fellowship and got done looking at someone else's house. And rather than thanking the Lord for his provision and grace, she goes shopping instead. It's like cheating on a test in God's school of disappointment. When the taxes are due and a man begins feeling, feeling the weight of the money he's about to lose to the U.S. government, instead of being honest and trusting the Lord, he cheats. It's going to lessen the pain. That's the promise, right? The promise of sin. This will feel better. It'll feel better if my house looks nicer. People will be more impressed. And I'll like that. I'll feel good inside. It'll feel better if I don't give as much money because I'll have more money. Not remembering the Lord can just take that money away anytime he wants to. And we cheat. We believe the promise of sin rather than the promise of God. When a young man begins feeling needy and lonely rather than seeing it as an invitation to deeper fellowship with Christ. 
He may be tempted to cheat by clicking on a website that no Christian should ever see. When Jesus was faced with various trials, however, he never cheated. He never gave in to temptation. He never took advantage of his heavenly privileges. He faced them as God expects us to face them. And so when we read in Hebrews 12 about how we are supposed to respond to temptations and trials and sufferings in this life, we can rest assured that the exhortation is not coming from someone who has never suffered, but one who has been tempted in every conceivable way as a man, but never once gave in. He always responded to suffering by faith in God's promises, which were to him the evidence of things hoped for, And the conviction of things not seen. Now, let's be a little more specific. How did Jesus respond to various trials in God's school of suffering? I'm just going to give you a couple of instances. And we'll start back where we were a few minutes ago. Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 4. And we're not going to read the temptation again. You're familiar with the temptation. But notice... Unlike those the author of Hebrews is exhorting, Jesus did not forget the word. He did not forget the word of exhortation. He did not neglect to bring the word of God to bear upon the temptation. Uh, He had a pretty good mental concordance, as we discover. He didn't need this. But rather, he quoted. Now, what would you quote from? You know what he quoted from? Deuteronomy 8. Sound like an obscure passage? Oh, yeah. But also helpful in his moment of trial. Listen to Deuteronomy 8. Now, in Luke 4, he quotes this part. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what was he thinking? He was thinking to himself, God's talked about this. God said something to Israel about this. And I remember what he said. He said to Israel through Moses, Humble yourselves. Uh, God, let me back up. God humbled you and let you be hungry. God did that. God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I take that to mean that we are to live by faith in what is it that comes out of the mouth of God? His promises. And for every command he gives, there is a corresponding promise for each one. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's my food. From the mouth of God comes life-giving promises. And if if we would be ruled by them rather than the promises of sin, then we would know abundant life, even if we're poor, even if we're hurricane-stricken, or we lose another baby, or the conflict in the marriage doesn't end as quickly as we had hoped. Jesus responded to his temptation, which was connected to his trial, he responded by faith. And God fulfilled his promise. 
Secondly, Jesus was tortured by the Romans. Remember that? Turn to John 19. John chapter 19. There there are other instances we can give. I'm just going to give three. John 19. One through five. I'll let you catch up as I read. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And, and, and it's astounding to me that, that that's the only statement we have. I mean, the scourging was so horrific. But Pilate took him and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and gave him slaps in the face. They were mocking him. They were brutalizing him. Him who knew no sin. And notice, unlike how we tend to respond, did you see how Jesus responded? How would you respond to this kind of undeserved treatment, this undeserved brutality? The Apostle Peter would later explain what Jesus was thinking when he wrote in 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God, to him who judges righteously. He kept saying to himself, he kept speaking the truth of God to himself, which we must Discipline ourselves to do. Bring the word of God to bear on your own heart. And he had to remind himself that one of the great promises of God is that one day there will be a judgment, a reckoning. And because of that promise, we do not respond to ill treatment by revenge. Rather, we leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You wonder how Jesus endured all of that? He brought the word of God to bear on his heart. On his circumstance. And you remember when Jesus was facing the the terror of the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane? For this you have to turn back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the the night before he was brutalized and nailed to a cross. Beginning with verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it's possible that this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I think of Spurgeon. Spurgeon who suffered so much physical illness. He had three diseases and they eventually took him. One time there were people visiting his room where he was ill. And he was in such pain, he asked them to leave. Would you just step out for a moment? I need to pray. And so he writes uh, something like this. He's, 
He said, I, I prayed to God and I said, God, I'm in such pain. You are my father. I am your son. If I had a son and he were in pain, he would cry out and I would come and I would lift his head and I would feed him and I would care for him. Oh, Father, I am your son. You are my dad. Help me. And he said it wasn't long before the pain left him. And the people returned to his room and he said, all is well now. My father has helped me. In this case, it was not the Father's will to help or to rescue Jesus. If there was ever a time to despise the discipline of the Lord or faint under its weight, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But notice the five things Jesus does. Five things. And these are instructive for you and me. Number one, he chose some close friends to attend him. He didn't withdraw by himself and mope and faint. Verse 37, he took with him Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. We need to be instructed by this. We need one another in our hour of temptation and suffering. And secondly, notice in verse 38, he laid his heart bare before these three brothers. Verse 38 says, then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He told them what he was feeling. This had to be difficult, if not devastating, for the disciples. And number three, he asked for their help in his warfare against sin, against unbelief, against the temptation that he was facing. Verse 38, the second half. Keep watch with me or pray with me. Pray with me. Help me. I need your help. I need you to pray with me about this because I'm being tempted. And then verse 39, he pleads with the father to remove the trial. And beloved, let me just tell you right now, if you're facing suffering, you're never going to hear this pastor tell you, don't pray that God will remove it. You pray God will heal you. You pray that God would, would raise you up, that God would take it away. It is perfectly legitimate for you to pray, God, if there's any way to let this pass from me, please take it back. I don't want it. I can't handle it. He prayed. He pleaded with the Father. But then, fifthly, he resolved to trust his Father's will. Verse 39, yet... Not as I will, but as you will. Beloved, when God tells us how to interpret and respond to trial, namely, by faith, even in the midst of tragedy and suffering in this sinful world, he speaks to us from experience. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He made it all the way to the end. He finished well. The reason I gave you a topical message this morning is because I didn't think I had adequately dealt with that issue because it's the exact reason that the author wrote these things. 
Say, how do you know that? I know that, Hebrews 12, because of this. He says, therefore, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and pioneer The one who went first before us. The author and perfecter of what? Of faith. He had to have faith. He was the one who did it first. He trusted the Father before asking any of us to do it. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here's the purpose. Four, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary. So that you will not lose heart. I tell you, I grieve sometimes when I, I read these prayer requests of such tragedy and difficulty that many of you have faced. And I pray, God, take it away. Take it away from them. But help them to learn whatever it is you want them to learn in God's school of suffering. And help them, oh God, help them, not to grow weary and lose heart. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 12. He doesn't want you to lose heart. How do we not lose heart? Remember, Jesus came to earth as a man to do what you could not do. That you would have a righteousness that is not your own, but one that he achieves for us. So that he could then indwell us, empowering us to do what we could never do before. We can say no to sin. We can trust God. We can be faithful in God's school of suffering. Jesus laid aside his heavenly privileges And suffered as a man to teach us how to live by faith in God's school of suffering. Are you encouraged by that? I am deeply and profoundly encouraged by this truth. And I pray you are too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, encourage our hearts. Strengthen us. I I pray for anyone listening to this message right now that is struggling beyond anything that that I, I could know of or conceive of. And I know they're out there. I pray, Father, right now that you would send your Spirit to minister to them these truths. And fill them with your Spirit and fill them with hope and fill them with a, a holy resolve and a holy ambition to be found pleasing to the Lord in the midst of of this difficulty, this disappointment, this lingering, residing trial, this tragedy that they're facing right now. Oh, Father, help them to take heart and to seek to glorify, honor, and please you in all things. For your great glory and for their own unquenchable joy, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.